say bonjour and, and welcome. We are recording from not Paris. We're recording from our respective basements. No, but uh, welcome to uh, the second part of our rapid fire tour through um, the highlights of ESMO 2022. So our last time around, uh, Josh and I, or our last time around, I led you guys through a rapid fire tour of some of the highlights of lung cancer and Josh focused on breast and upper GI. So continuing with the theme, Josh is going to lead us off with colorectal, of which there was quite a bit to talk on at this ESMO. Quite a lot of interesting stuff, actually. And I will close us out with some GU and some skin cancer uh, shenanigans. But Josh, uh, tell me, what was the most interesting interesting thing you found in the in your journey through the ESMO abstracts this time around? I think the fact that they actually had some colorectal updates. It was really nice. A lot of the time, poor colorectal and upper GI get left behind in the investigation spheres. And there's a couple of interesting studies, some utilizing immunotherapy, some utilizing targeted therapy that actually have some promising results. So I'll be interested to see after our discussion, what you think, Michael, and whether you think this could become potential future standards of care. I'm sure you'll have at least one standard of care for us after your foray into the uh, FGFR2 stuff last time and calling it standard of care right off the bat. Yeah, so it's actually, speaking of the FGFR2, and I did know this and I should have mentioned it last time, we actually had this open, this trial open at my hospital, the Relay 4008, but there's some interesting points about that, that it's it's a selective FGFR2 and not a pan FGFR2 or potentially the other way around. And there's a lot of, there's a race to the finish line with the FGFR stuff. And I don't know who's going to win it. I'm sure the PBS is looking uh, with bated breath at, for the winner because they'll probably only approve the winner. There's no need to improve the company that comes in second. I think it also depends on the outcomes, though, and the price. That is that is also a very good point. All right, Josh, why don't you take it away and tell us all about uh, colorectal at ESMO 2022? Let the games begin. So you, you don't you don't want me doing my Bane impression this time. I already I already did French last time. You don't want me to do Tom Hardy as Bane. <laughs> well, you have to keep some things fresh for our future episodes, Michael. Otherwise, I don't know all your repertoire. Absolutely. So in in the future episode where I do do Bane, we can point to this uh, particular instance and everyone can blame Josh. (laughs) Everyone already does. I won't bore people any longer. I'm going to be talking about the Cairo 5 study. Interesting. This is a Dutch study. I don't see many really big Dutch studies, but this is awesome. Um, It's Folfox, Folfus, Folfiri, plus either Bevacizumab or Panitumumab in patients with initially unresectable colorectal liver metastases and left-sided BRAF wild-type tumors. It's a phase three study. Important things to note, studies in colorectal cancer, generally there's not that many. They don't always involve chemotherapy. So it's nice to see that. And it's nice to actually look at sort of head-to-heads of two VEGF inhibitors, right? Because that's exactly what they are, Michael. I think the interesting thing, 
with bevacizumab is it's quite controversial here in Australia, whereas panitumab is much more, it's not controversial. I think the benefits of bevacizumab are some people very much pro, some people very much against, but we can talk about that at the end. Should we call it debatable? Debatable. That's that's a that's the better word. Okay. So what's the background? So patients with I'm going to say potentially resectable or initially unresectable liver mets may qualify for curative intent local therapy after downsizing by induction systemic therapy. So Kyra Five was designed to find the optimal induction regimen. Here we present the results of this study. So they were randomized, as I said, to either chemo arm and plus either bevacizumab, which is arm A, or panitumumab arm B for 12 cycles. I'm going to refer to it as that. They were not allowed to have prior systemic therapy or local therapy for metastases. And they had a baseline scan and then they were reassessed every two months. So think of it this way, 12 cycles every two weeks with this chemotherapy um, that's going to be six months of chemotherapy treatment, so at least three reviews. The patients were then stratified uh, whether they were potentially resectable or permanently unresectable, their serum LDH and their choice of arenotecan versus oxaliplatin, primary endpoint being progression-free survival. What I found is that they the median follow-up was about 44 months. Age was pretty good, about the age of 60 in both. Um, it was very well balanced, at least from the stats that I saw. Um, I think it was 60% were male synchronous liver cancers were in 88 or 92% of each arm. And I think 4 and 3% had prior adjuvant chemotherapy. So a pretty small amount had gone to metastasize. The thing that I note is that with the outcomes, there were only 197 events. So their, their pre-specified aim when I was reading through this was 256. Couldn't understand why they didn't reach that, but that's just something to flag. Anyway, the median PFS in arm A versus arm B was 10.6 versus 10.3 months with a hazard ratio of 1.12. So it wasn't statistically significant. What we did see, though, was an increased response rate in the panitumumab arm, which was 52 versus 76%, but the median duration of response was 33 versus 49%, also favoring panitumumab. Um, and grade three toxicities was higher in the panitumumab arm. But in saying that for the endpoint, which was progression-free survival and what we were looking at, there actually isn't a difference between bevacizumab and panitumumab. In looking at that, toxicities are higher in the pani arm, along with the fact that the, well, the duration of response was also better in the panitumumab arm. Grade, greater than grade three toxicities were seen in just about 70% of panitumumab and 52% of bevacizumab, so a fair few toxicities. I mean, panitumumab as an EGFR inhibitor is um, significantly more toxic sort of um, than bevacizumab. Um, But it's interesting that, I I guess, how would you uh, marry up the uh, improvement in uh, overall response rate and sort of duration of response with panitumumab with the fact that there was still no PFS benefit? Is it just like they responded initially and then, or they were more likely to respond initially, I should say, and then they just sort of progressed at the same time? It's a really good question and they didn't allude to that at all. But it'd be interesting to see because my question is this. If the duration response was better, does that mean 
or, you know, the response rate was technically better in the panentumumab arm, although PFS wasn't any different, could you operate earlier on these patients in the panentumumab arm if you've got an extra 20% that have responded? It doesn't doesn't make a huge amount of sense. Um, and Michael, maybe correct me if you're you're seeing this very clearly, but I'd always assume that if you've got a better response rate, then realistically that would probably confer to potentially a better progression-free survival. <clears throat> what doesn't um, really make sense to me is it's the duration of response. Is you said was better in the panatumumab arm compared to the bevacizumab arm, and so so yeah. if you have a greater duration of response you would think that the flip side of that is that you have you you progress later but i'm not really sure um was but but basically one of the uh, i think the takeaways like you said this was for query resectable patients or patients who are potentially resectable is that right that is correct so they're i guess borderline resectable but in my institution yours might be the same if they're young you're not going to use Firefox or theory you're going to use firefox theory if i was redesigning the study i'd like to look at you know the really hard hitting chemo and see how the outcomes yeah. were i i think the and i'm sure there will be people out there who will probably correct me on this but i think the evidence like the the theory behind giving someone firefox theory as it is in colorectal cancer is um, to try and make an unresectable uh, oligometastatic cancer resectable is a good one, but I'm not sure that there's much evidence actually behind that because um, the the one trial that I do know in this space is um, uh, it uses Folfox, but critically, I think with both of our institutions, you don't use um, biologics, you don't use bevacizumab, you don't use panatumumab, so... Uh, from from my perspective, it would have been interesting to see if the Bev or the Panatubumab maybe have a third arm in there that was just Folfox or was just Folfoxiri and see if the addition of the um, biologic actually gains anything because we know that the benefit, theoretically, is uh, relatively modest in the metastatic setting. But does it actually convert people from uh, unresectable to resectable? I think the, the issue with your, your study design alteration, Michael, is that depending who's funding the study and if you're going against standard of care, which is just chemotherapy and it's the same, it does some pretty terrible things to their ability to use this drug in this context. Uh, you, you are a man of the corporate world, Josh. You understand they're thinking much more than I do. Well, it all comes back to even just using chemotherapy as, you know, unless you want to prove that it's better than chemotherapy, then you'll use it as the arm. But I'm assuming they probably aren't sure. That's my, my hypothesis. Which these um, results would potentially bear out if there's no bene- if there's no benefit to adding a biologic compared to each other, there very well may not be a benefit to adding a biologic at all well that's that's the thing because i know with uh, the patients i've treated there's also that question about healing and delayed healing in the use of bevacizumab you know it's a huge issue with bevacizumab yeah so i'm like would you even want to have bev if you're borderline receptible i think the surgeons might have a different uh, take on that yeah i think they definitely would um and 
in the in the instances that I've there's one instance of this that I've seen where a patient was initially assessed as unresectable. Um, they actually went and sought a second opinion from a different surgeon, and the surgeon said, "Yeah, look, I'll, I'll give it a shot." But they had already received bevacizumab, so it was a huge undertaking, and there was a lot of uh, bated breath around the time of the surgery, which unfortunately proved to be unsuccessful. Um, about the consequences of Bev and you know how long it was in the system and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, completely agree with your point that bevacizumab is presents a, a minefield and a potentially unnecessary minefield if you are looking at intervening surgically. 100%. And I need to correct myself, and we don't have to edit this out, but panitumab is, a, is an endothelial growth factor receptor, guys. I think I, I said that both there, Jeff, is just in, if you get different, uh, they work on different receptors. Address all of your complaints about the inaccuracy of this podcast to Josh. Yes, please, please, uh, a thumbs up and uh, subscribe if you like uh, Michael, and if you don't, you can uh, you can run away. Um, let, let let us know in the chat. Isn't that what they're saying on streaming things these days? Something like that. Let's move on. Just given time, and we have a lot of articles to get to. I'm going to talk about Mountaineer, which, looking through all the data, it's actually previously been presented at ESMO in I think 2019 and 2020. Um, so background to this study, we're looking at HER2 positive colorectal cancers. They really want some of these targeted agents to work in colorectal because it's been so successful with breasts. Although what we do know is that it doesn't really influence the prognosis of colorectal cancer. It's about 3 to 5%. But this study was evaluating the efficacy and safety of using two agents, one which was being tocatinib along with, you know, the... Uh, her two heavyweight, trastuzumab. These patients all had to be RAS wild type and HER2 positive. Um, and from memory, the they could have been previously treated for metastatic disease. Now, at least three quarters of patients had had at least two prior lines of therapy. And remember, in colorectal cancer, standard, there's about four lines of therapy, and then you're kind of looking at the trials and re-challenging now, the study designed multi-center phase two, 86 patients, 31 patients with single agent to catnib um, out of the 80. So at the study entry, 64% of patients had liver meds and 70% had lung metastases um, and, a, a H, and had a median of three prior lines of therapy. So they were getting towards the end and approximately 85% of patients had tumour in the left side of the colon or rectum. The end point for the study, so that's what we want to know, um, was confirmed objective response rate, which is what we, which is the outcome, right? So outcomes for this. Median follow-up, 20.7 months. So decent follow-up. Objective response rate, 38.1%. That's in the intervention arm. And disease control rate of 71.4%. Median response of time was about 12.4 months and um, monotherapy treatment response rate was a measly 3%. Disease-free survival was 8.2 months and median overall survival in the intervention arm was 24 months. That's not bad for colorectal guys. At 12 months, 34% had received, that had received the intervention arm were free of disease progression and 72% were alive. And at 24 months, 51% were alive. And when you look at a tocatinib monotherapy, the response rate at 12 weeks was 3% and the disease control rate was about 80%. But we need more lines of therapy in metastatic colorectal cancer. And looking at this, 
it's potentially a good line of therapy that might actually be a practice changing option in the HER2 setting might. I'm saying might because it's a smaller study and it's a phase two. The other things is also is like, where should we actually use this treatment? Should we use it after, you know, Firefox, Fulfiri, whatever other lines you want to use? You know, you've gone to Lonsurf, which people struggle with, or, you know, Regorafenib, also not particularly well tolerated. And then you use this, or would you use this in, let's say, the second line setting or maybe the first line setting? I'm not sure, and I think that should be investigated given that it actually has a pretty good response rate. Um, and it would also be interesting to look at the toxicities, compare them to standard therapy. But, yeah, and the only other thing to talk about is what is tocatinib. Sorry, Michael, I, I forgot to mention that. It is an oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor that's highly selective for HER2. I think... Um... This also um, emphasizes, I guess, the importance of thinking of targets that we don't usually associate with certain tumor types. HER2 is becoming huge um, and and HER3 as well is um, becoming a significant target in not just breast cancer, where it's ubiquitous, it's very well known, even uh, lay people know know the name Herceptin. But you know, people are looking at it in lung cancer, in colorectal cancer. There's uh, fairly established evidence in uh, esophagogastric cancers. So, um, but it does emphasize that when you have patients who are getting past the first and second, third lines of therapy, uh, to think about these less associated targets, because they're even in Australia, I say even in Australia, um, but you know, Sometimes these things are a bit slow coming to our shores, so we sh- shall we say, Josh? Sometimes, sometimes, but but there there are ways to um, request HER two testing for patients with colorectal cancer and lung cancer, and it is important when you're trying to explore options because it is probably more common than we think. I did have one question though, Josh, about about um, the data, and you might not have it there. Did they talk about? brain mets or cns disease at all in the info you've got that's a really good question let me just have a look the reason i ask is because the only other study i've seen to catnip in again in the breast cancer space is her to climb and as a heavily pre-treated drug it was all right but what they really really found that surprised i think everybody was that it was highly efficacious in the treatment of CNS disease of brain meds. Now, brain meds aren't as big a factor in colorectal cancer. I think I've seen only one patient with colorectal cancer who had brain meds. But um, the efficacy of tucatinib is something that potentially uh, opens a lot of doors for patients with heavily pretreated disease and, and brain meds, which are notoriously hard to treat. So I'm just wondering if that was ap- applicable to this study. Look, I didn't see it in the what I was reading. Well, I'm not, that doesn't mean it wasn't there. There was another thing I wanted to highlight. As I said, monotherapy treatment result response rate was 3%, but that the control rate from that at 12 weeks was 80%. And I looked at it and I'm like, this just seems a little bit odd, this number. I would be interested to see when the actual trial gets published to at least the updated data gets published to see whether or not maybe I just read a typo, but it seems strange that you've got a treatment response of 3%, but disease control of 80%. 
maybe it was a uh, 80% of the 3%. Who knows? Um, but yeah, look, uh, this is with people with multiple lines of therapy. They had a durable response. This is some exciting news for this, this cohort of patients. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to niche two. New adjuvant ipinevo in colorectal cancer. There's a theme because there was another one at ASCO for rectal cancer. I think you probably remember it, Michael. And there was a standing ovation. And then every second patient asked me about this particular drug. And I'm like, this is not applicable to your cancer. So the background is new adjuvant immunotherapy, promising in multiple lines of cancer um, for colon cancer niche, which was the first study. Um, I think it was the first new adjuvant immunotherapy study showing pathological responses in 100% of deficiency MMR tumors. Um, so for our listeners, DMMR or MSI high are the kind of the cohort of colorectal patients that will respond to immunotherapy. There's a lot more work that needs to go into that sphere about, yes, we know that, but not everyone responds, but it's essentially a marker. It's not like PDL one where you know if you've got a 90% response rate, then you're likely to have a really good response it's a a little bit more nuanced than that so what they did know in this particular trial uh, importantly disease-free survival in patients with stage 3 dmmr colorectal cancer was similar to that of pmmr um, and the three-year occurrence rates so recurrence rates in the adjuvant setting is about 40 percent in the high risk so that's a t4 and or n2 stage 3 tumor and i think what they're looking at in this particular study was the disease-free survival if you gave neoadjuvant immunotherapy. Um, so it was non-metastatic DMMR, colorectal cancer, were treated with one dose of IPI because it's toxic and gross. And no, sorry, <laughs> I, I should clarify, it does work with some people respond really badly to IPI. It's, it's a bit of a hard drug to manage. Um, it, it, and- it can be gross. Though. can be gross not everyone is gross with we could just edit that and two two doses of nivolumab and underwent surgery within six weeks of registration so the co-primary endpoints were safety and three-year dfs and the secondary endpoint was major pathological response and complete response this might sound familiar because a lot of studies are using a very similar design so 112 patients were treated there were minimal toxicities it was really well um, tolerated baseline radiological radiological assessment showed 89 percent of patients having stage 3 77 percent having high risk stage 3 and 64 percent having t4 tumors so median time to first dose of um, to surgery was five weeks and pathological response this is the result guys so pathological response was observed in 99 percent of patients consisting of 102 out of 107 having a major pathological response um, and four having a partial response. And pathological complete response, so like no viable tumour, that's usually what it means, was seen in 67% of patients. And a median follow-up at 13 months, none of the patients had disease recurrence. This is the point, Michael, that we spoke about. We spoke last week about the waterfall plot. Yes, yes. And you're like, that's not a waterfall plot. This is a waterfall plot. So I encourage all of our listeners to have a look because it is just a beautiful waterfall plot. It it really is. And this is a this is a standing ovation uh, um, worthy study, without a doubt. I admit that I let my Australianness get back uh, get the better of me when uh, composing that tweet using. Uh, 
using my crocodile dundee uh but um it really is incredible and i think the interesting thing about this is that there are a lot of people saying and i think this relates to what you said josh about the lack of recurrence after patients who had a, a complete or major pathological response were potentially saving these people from surgery so it's not a case of it's not like breast cancer where you do the surgery anyway to confirm a pathological response. You give the immunotherapy, you rescan them, you confirm that there has been, or you do another scope, you confirm that there's been a, a macroscopic major pathological response, and then you just watch them. So you're saving these people potentially significant morbidity through surgery. Potentially, Michael, but I thought they all followed up with surgery anyway in this particular cohort. Yeah, no, I think in this in the trial they did, but there was a question because it's not mm, okay. It, it, it is comparatively, and I used the word comparatively very carefully because breast surgery can be incredibly morbid, but it is comparatively more morbid to take out someone's bowel than um, excise or even remove someone's breast. Okay, so I'm I'm on the same page as you. I was like, Michael, they're they're not suggesting that you don't operate on these patients. I don't think we have that data just yet. No, no, no. This was this was uh, people sort of uh, throwing out their opinions about how significant niche two could be, um, in terms of saving people from surgery up front. I I think I would be a little bit more hesitant to jump to that conclusion. I. I just feel we we need much bigger trials to even suggest this. Plus, my other my other reservation is once again this is a DMMR population, so we knew they were likely to respond to treatment. I would love to see some newer adjuvant trials that kind of with colorectal cancer or just just using other agents that we find another targetable or something that works for these guys because we need more options. All right, I'm going to move to my final study. We're racing through this, Mikey, and I think we're doing a good job. We're doing a great Um, job, uh, Josh. Yes, great. So next is Fresco2, F-R-E-S-C-O-2, which is Frequitinib versus BSC, Best Supportive Care. So this was a global phase three multi-regional clinical trial evaluating the efficacy and safety of Frequitinib in patients with refractory metastatic colorectal cancer. We're on the same topic, everyone. Um, so background, we know this limited number of treatments. The later lines of treatment aren't great. They're, they're a bit challenging for the patient. They're myelosuppressed. They're frail. It doesn't go that well, and you have to kind of look for trials. So fraquitinib is a highly selective, potent oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor um, to VEGF1 two and three um, and it was improved in china i believe um, in a metastatic colorectal setting a cancer setting based on the results from the uh, i'm assuming the original fresco trial um, so fresco 2 is looking at f i'm going to just label it as f in more heavily pre-treated patients reflecting current global practices so the method it was done lots of countries lots of places including australia um, and they were they were randomized to um, P, which is placebo, um, plus best supportive care, or um, frequitinib, 
or F, I should just say, plus just F, right? Um, and it's an oral tablet in a 28-day cycle. So the key criteria had to have previous treatment, um, anti-VEGF therapy, um, and they want to know what the RAS, RAS wild type was as well. Um, the patients were randomized to receive two to one, so either the intervention arm or the control arm, and were stratified according to prior therapy, um, RAS status and metastatic disease timeframe less than or more than 18 months with the primary endpoint being overall survival and the secondary endpoint being progression-free survival. Mikey, I'm going to stop here. Why do you think they made the primary endpoint overall survival? Because they had enough events or they were expecting enough mortality events that they could actually report overall survival fairly quickly given that they're comparing it to best supportive care. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's compared to their supportive care. So anything that's going to do anything will be better than nothing, right? Okay. Overall survival, 7.4 months versus 4.8 months. Hazard ratio of 0.66 with statistical significance. Um, and PFS was 3.7 versus 1.8 months with a hazard ratio of 0.32 and P of less than 0.01. Median duration of follow-up was 11.3 months approximately for both groups. Um, and subsequent anti-cancer therapies were in about a third of each cohort. Now, what I found is that the greater than three grade adverse events was in 62% of the F cohort and half percent of the placebo cohort. They've actually put a table here and I, I haven't really spoken about it, but they've compared the safety profile of Frequitinib to Regorafenib to um, Lonsoc, which, which I hate pronouncing this, Trifluridine and Tipiracil, right? And the toxicity profile when you're looking at numbers to numbers are actually somewhat similar to Regorafenib. Um, Mikey, have you used much regorafenib in your practice? My practice? Absolutely none, if I'm honest. Mm. Yeah, I suge- I've suggested it about twice, if I must admit, and the response from a lot of my specialists I work with is that it's pretty hard to tolerate, especially in where the line of therapy is, which is later lines of therapy. Um, and, you know, there's a small cohort of patients that are even going to be able to tolerate this as well. So while, yes, it does have a meaningful overall survival, um, and they said it was well tolerated, I'm not sure what you define as well tolerated, but may- maybe maybe people, you know, despite that, they could still live their life and do what they wanted to do. I guess the question is now, could you use this at that point? Can you move it up, you know, if it is a really good um, VEGF inhibitor, could we then move it into an earlier line of therapy and kind of replace the existing one? That would be something that I would find really interesting compared to kind of standard of care VEGF inhibitors in the metastatic setting. This is sort of how most uh, new agents tend to develop, isn't it? They start at the bottom and then they show consistent benefit over things that have come before in this case, best supportive care. And um, that's how they get sort of to the top of the tree. Yeah, so it's potentially promising. I would be a little bit worried about the toxicity profile in the later lines of therapy because if it's that that's going on a trial, I don't know. I need some experience with this drug to really see what we need to look at. Um, 
but they say there's quite a bit of fatigue. Um, I think most is probably mild, grade one to two, but decreased appetite, diarrhea in, I think, 21% of patients, you know, nausea in 17% of patients, fatigue in 42% of patients. I think that most of my patients who have later stage colorectal cancer are already pretty fatigued. And you raise a very important point, Josh, which is in general, the more lines of therapy you have had, the less likely you are to tolerate further therapy. Now, there's exceptions to this, and the exceptions are probably the majority of patients who made it to this trial, because I'm guessing they still had to be good functionally to actually be enrolled. But generally speaking, the longer you are on anti-cancer treatment for metastatic cancer of any kind, the more fragile you become and the easier it is for toxicities related to treatment to become overwhelming. And I think that's a very important point you make, Josh, because it can be applied really to almost any oncological situation. Yeah, exactly. So the, these, this is not a magic bullet, but potentially it is something in our arsenal and there would definitely be a subset of patients who would benefit from this. And an extra three months, as I so often say, means getting to that family event that someone really wanted to. Mikey, I'm aware of the time. And I want to make sure that you get to indulge us with all of your wonderful stories. So how about we switch over? Sounds good, Josh. Sounds good. Um, So much like Josh did last week, I'm going to be doing a fairly rapid run through of a few other areas that were covered in ESMO. And I'm going to start with uh, genitourinary cancer. Um, There didn't seem to be at least from the other side of the world, following on Twitter and what have you. There didn't seem to be too much uh, in the way of uh, huge trials in genitourinary cancer as there were with lung and, as we've heard today, colorectal. But there were still a few tidbits that I'd like to talk about, um, and I'll aim to do these very quickly. The first trial is the Radicals HD trial. And this is a trial that um, I found quite interesting because it's something that I don't have too much experience with, and I'm sh- I'm not sure if it's the same with you, Josh, but it's about the duration of androgen deprivation therapy after radical prostatectomy in combination with radiotherapy. So it's early stage prostate cancer, which generally speaking is not something we see a lot of. No, we don't. Um, I had a couple of these patients, and yeah, it's always one of those questions. It's like, what do you give? Because we're saying, what do you give after radiotherapy? Is that kind of what this trial is looking at? Or sort of with radiotherapy. So radiotherapy, obviously, um, as a completion to, uh, or, or an adjuvant to rad- a radical prostatectomy, and then you, you're giving mm-hmm. ADT on top of that. And the question is how much and for how long? I'm going to guess two years, but enlighten me. <laughs> not too, Not too far off, if we're honest. So patients were randomised to receive either no ADT, nothing at all, six months of ADT, which was called the short group, or 24 months of ADT, which was the long group. So Josh, rather than being close, you're actually 100% on the money. And I, I'm guessing that's because you pre-read the study. I'm, I can neither confirm or deny that I knew this fact. <laughs> Okay, Um, it's good that Josh is doing the pre-reading. The primary outcome was metastasis-free survival, and the secondary outcomes were the time to salvage ADT, so uh, at the time of recurrence or development of metastatic disease where you would 
normally start ADT, and overall survival. Now, this is a huge study that's actually been cooking for quite a long time. They recruited 2,800 patients, and they only finished recruitment in 2015. So um, this will give you a sense, Josh, of how... Uh, how long a duration of follow-up and survival we're going to be talking about. I'm excited. I can't wait. Just just hit, throw it at me. Tell me the I'm, results. I'm going to throw it at you. I'd throw it at you literally if you weren't on the other side of a computer screen. Um, so the median follow-up was nine years, which is something that we really don't see in, in oncology research at all. The six-month ADT group compared to the no- ADT group did not improve median uh, sorry, uh, metastasis-free survival or overall survival. The hazard ratio was 0.89. Uh, it did not meet statistical significance. And the metastasis-free survival at 10 years, you're going to love this, Josh, was 79 versus 80%. Wait, so say that again. So at 10 years... Yep. In the groups that were that had no ADT, in the groups that had six months of ADT, the metastasis-free survival was seventy-nine and eighty percent, respectively. So, what you're saying, they were literally getting like lolly injections. So, pretty much for all of the good that it did, but for six, but for but for six months only. So they got a, a course of six months and then stopped. So that's what I was I was implying with the lolly injections, but just yes, <laughs> yes, yes. yeah, exactly, Useless. yeah. Um, so the twenty-four month ADT group did have an improved outcome compared to the six months, and the reason these numbers are, are numerically different is they did have separate comparator groups. So they had a, um, se- a subsection of the six month group that was compared with the no ADT group, and the subsection of the six month group that was compared with the twenty-four month ADT group. It's, very complex and confusing, but um, that's the reason that these numbers are different. So, the median over uh, the uh, metastasis-free survival had a hazard ratio of 0.77, uh, with a 72 and 78% EFS um, at 10 years. So, um, that's event-free survival, by the way. So, so we're still looking at more than three quarters of patients uh, being metastasis-free at 10 years. The time to salvage ADT was improved with a hazard ratio of 0.73, but overall survival was not improved. Um, and I guess <laughs> when you're looking at these sorts of uh, these sorts of numbers, this sort of duration of response, bearing in mind that the median age of this study was 66, so uh, statistically, I guess, so, or at a population level, when you're getting to 10 years, you're getting to patients who are 76 year, years old, they're probably... If they're not going to die of their cancer, they're going to have other comorbidities that might claim them. So uh, it's not really surprising that overall survival was not improved. The question I guess this raises is, will we start seeing earlier referrals from our urology colleagues? Or, I mean, most of the urologists that I've worked with are very happy to start ADT. And so will we be seeing more people who have been on ADT for... 24 months already before they actually get referred to us with castration-resistant disease? That's a good question. I suspect that if they're going to progress from surgery or you know their definitive treatment to or radiotherapy to, let's say, castrate resistance in two years in that setting, there's a, I think there's other questions at hand because, A, were they the appropriate candidate that got this definitive treatment? Because it means it's pretty, 
it's pretty aggressive. Most of our patients who have definitive treatment won't go from castrate sensitive to castrate resistant in two years. But it's an it is an interesting question about starting this treatment early and if there's no overall survival and guys that have been followed up for almost ten years is it something that's we're worthwhile holding on to until they do develop metastatic disease? Because then if you've got hormone sensitive, so castrate sensitive metastatic hormone disease and you start them on Thermagon or Degarolex or whatever it is you want to start them on and you give them another five years at the age of 76, that gets them to 81. Then they have castrate resistant disease and they're still good. So you're like, cool, let's switch you to Avaretarone or Enzalutamide or Darolutamide or whichever other one you want to give, that gives them another two years. You know, you're 83. At that point, you can switch some things up. You know, letitium's coming on board. There's um, actinium as well. So you've got other options. So, Mikey, sorry, I, I went on a tangent. I quite enjoy a prostate cancer, um, at least the, the, the discussion part. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I guess the, the main thing is that... Um the um, patients received 24 months, so two years of treatment, but presumably were then disease-free or metastasis-free for eight years or thereabouts without any treatment. So I guess at that point, if they do recur after 10 years, so eight years after they've completed their treatment, um, you could theoretically say, well, they didn't progress on ADT and then... um, put them on ADT and then see if they are actually castration resistant because they might not be because theoretically their hormone levels would have been normal for the last eight years. Yeah, look, theoretically you are right. So, I mean, maybe they just last another five years at that point and you've kind of just given them that eight years. So, Mm. you know, I think it's whichever way you want to look at it. I think it's potentially uh, we need another 10 years of this study to really give us a good answer. Is, that's a terrible cop out, isn't it? That's that that's that's a cop out among cop outs. I guess I guess the the thing you, you did say you did mention it though, that with uh, ADT, with the evidence that we're the novel antiandrogens are better at the first line, we've got docetaxel in the first line with hormone sensitive prostate cancer. We are fairly good at treating it in a lot of settings. The patients who go from hormone sensitive to castration resistance resistant after definitive treatment within two years are already poor players you you would be justified in treating them fairly aggressively but at the same time it's it's worth remembering that people who receive adt can sometimes have significant side side effects particularly if they have a cardiovascular history because there is evidence that adt increases your risk of cardiac events uh, due to sort of testosterone depletion and its effects on on vasculature. So if you have a patient in front of you who has had a radical prostatectomy, they've had radiotherapy and they have a significant cardiac history or significant cardiac risk factors, they're diabetic, they've got a family history, they've already had a triple bypass at age 66, maybe ADT is not the best idea for 24 months. And if you're not going to give it for 24 months, as this study suggests, you may as well not give it at all in this particular setting. I'd agree with you, I think, because in that cohort of patients, if they never relapsed, you know, you're, you're off scot-free, and if they relapse 10 years down the track, you've got 10 years of not really aggravating a cardiac event that could be fatal. Yeah, exactly. So I think I agree with you. I think this is still a little bit unclear, and 
as we said at the top, it's probably not something that we will, it's not a decision that we will necessarily be involved with very much as oncologists, but it's worth being abreast of changes um, because these patients will inevitably uh, find their way towards us. Moving right along, uh, the next study to talk about is a renal cell study one of two that I've got in the GU space, which is COSMIC313. It's a phase three study of cabozantinib plus ipinevo versus ipinevo alone. And patients uh, enrolled in the study had previously untreated advanced clear cell renal cell cancer, the most common type, and their IMDC risk was intermediate or poor. I won't go into the uh, details of the IMDC uh, classification system. If any of our listeners are unsure, I thoroughly recommend downloading the MedCalc app and having a look. It's basically a, uh, a tool to that we use frequently to try and assess the survival or the prognosis, I should say, of patients with renal cell cancer. Quite a large study, COSMIC 313, with 855 patients enrolled, and the treatment was continued until loss of clinical benefit or intolerable toxicity. And uh, crossover was not allowed, which I guess sort of practically makes sense because if you're progressing, if you progress on ipinevo, then adding cabozantinib on top of ipinevo probably isn't going to get you the best outcomes. You need to completely switch it up. Primary endpoint was progression-free survival and the secondary endpoint was overall survival, which I will say right at the top was immature, the data for overall survival, so won't be talking about that. In terms of results, the progression-free survival of the hazard ratio was 0.73 in the intention-to-treat population, the overall population, and the secondary endpoints of overall response rate and disease control rate were numerically higher, but still unsure as to the significance of that. The toxicity, as one would expect, was significantly higher in the cabozantinib group, um, with diarrhea, rash, LFT derangement, and hand-foot syndrome all much more common in the triplet. Um, and it's at this stage, Josh, that I probably should uh, uh, disclose a bias that I have to this study. So you're being funded? I, yes, I, I'm a shill. I'm a shill for the cosmic uh, industry. No, the, the uh, bias I have is that when I was uh, but a wee lad in my first year of training, uh, I actually saw a patient who had been enrolled in cosmic and he had got the triplet. And he had quite possibly the most horrific toxicity I have ever seen in my life. And I don't think I'll ever forget about it. He had uh, hepatotoxicity, he had hepatitis requiring multiple uh, immunosuppressive agents, including, including trochromus. He had nephritis and was dialysis dependent. And he also had immune-mediated bone marrow failure and was transplant, uh, transfusion dependent. So he was really, really hit hard by this treatment. And so I must declare that when I uh, heard about this and read the results of Cosmic, I immediately flashed back to this gentleman and I thought, "Uh, I'm not sure that's something that I would ever use. Um, But that is a bias that I must bear. Uh, Authors also did a unplanned comparison between the efficacy in the intermediate and poor risk groups. So patients that are, I guess better or worse or have a worse prognosis and the interesting thing and the other thing that I think sort of makes me a little bit hesitant to adopt this uh, triplet therapy is that the uh, efficacy appeared to be entirely in the intermediate group as opposed to the poor risk group so there was no difference 
in the PFS and overall response rate in the poor risk group between the doublet and the triplet. But the PFS and uh, the overall response rate um, in the intermediate group, or sorry, the PFS in the intermediate group was 0.63. So the overall hazard ratio of 0.73 is clearly being driven by the intermediate group. And I'm not really convinced that the toxicity associated with a triplet with the lack of benefit of a poor, in the poor risk group makes this regimen worth it, given that Ipinevo is already an excellent regimen. I agree with you, uh, actually. It's, it's a very, I think it's a difficult thing to talk to your patient and convince them to have triplet therapy with such a terrible toxicity profile and without any real known benefit. What I do love is on, I've looked up the publication page and this is the line when it comes to the toxicities that they have used. The safety profile observed in this trial was reflective of the known safety profile for each single agent, as well as the combination regimens used in this study. The, the, the wording of that is just... <laughs> that's, very, that's almost poetic in its vagueness. I know. It's like, yes, every, every drug has a toxicity profile, but when you put them together, it's probably more... Yeah, and, and it, is, it is cumulative, so... Um, and, and look, no, under no circumstances are we suggesting that every patient will have the sort of toxicity that this one patient that I met did have. That's obviously not the case. Otherwise it wouldn't have made the combination wouldn't have made it to trial or wouldn't have made it this far, but it is a significant factor when you're counselling and when you're talking to these patients about the relative pros and cons of ipinevo by itself, where the toxicity is already potentially significant, plus adding cabazantinib. And we know that cabazantinib has its own set of problems. And I guess if you're really bearing down on what that wording, that sentence that you just read, Josh, is, it is that, yes, you have three potentially very toxic regimens and you're giving them together so that the tox- so the toxicity can be terrible. I, I think what I take from this, um, there's probably going to be a subset of patients who could potentially benefit from this. I, I think before we say no for everyone, we always have to think that giving these drugs, it's not a harmless proposition. People die. If there isn't a huge benefit or enough of a benefit, then we really need to think about it. Look, I, I, I um, talk to my patients about tamoxifen and the adjuvant setting of breast cancer. I know this is different. And when I tell them there is a very small risk of clotting and there is a very small risk of you know, um, endometrial cancer, right? And they look at me mortified. And look, it's tiny. Like this risk is very, it's very small. Less than 1%. Exactly. And that's what I tell them. But, you know, to these people, it's huge. And yes, it's in the adjuvant setting. So I appreciate that. And these guys, if they've got a couple of years left and you reduce that because of the toxicity, you need to think long and hard about whether or not the triplet therapy would actually be beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we're, we're a bit cooler on cosmic at uh, Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind than, than other people. But anyway, we'll move it right along. Um, and the last GU trial that I want to talk about is Keynote B61, which uh, is not a uh, type of uh, bomber used by the United States. It is a study of non-clear cell 
RCC. Now, non-clear cell RCC very quickly accounts for about 25 to 35% of all renal cell cancers, but they are notorious for the dearth of evidence behind the treatment. So we just sort of extrapolate um, data from the clear cell space and there are a few sort of small phase two trials, but because they're less common, they're harder to recruit. And they're also a heterogeneous group. So the most common subtypes of non-clear cell RCC are papillary, which is the most common, chromophobe, medullary, and translocational. And translocational um, can be uh, significantly nasty in that it frequently affects young people as well. Keynote B61 is a single-arm phase 2 study, so again, another small study, evaluating pembrolizumab plus limvatinib as a first-line treatment of this heterogeneous group of cancers. The primary endpoint is overall response rate, and the secondary endpoints are duration of response, disease control rate, progression-free and overall survival, and safety. And results were only analysed in patients who received more, greater than or equal to 24 weeks of treatment. So patients had to be established on treatment before they were actually their results were actually analysed. So in terms of the breakdown of the patients, the most common subtype of non-clear cell carcinoma, as is uh, the case in the general population, is papillary with almost 60%. Chromophobe um, RCC was next with 17%. Uh, the unclassified, uh, it's also important to note that you can have sort of small bits and pieces, portions of different types of cancers. So unclassified was 12 or 13%. Translocational was 4 and medullary was 0.7. The median follow-up was 8.2 months. And in terms of the results, the overall response rate for the whole cohort was 47%. Uh, but this was probably largely driven by the 53% overall response rate in the papillary cancers. Chromophobe, cancer, uh, chromophobe RCCs had a 13, that's 1-3% response rate, so really not responding very well. Uh, but the unclassifieds, uh, by uh, contrast, responded 71% of the time. Uh, the translocational uh, group had a 60% response rate, but they only accounted for 40% of Four percent, I should say, of all patients. The disease control rate overall was almost eighty percent. Again, largely driven by the papillary and undifferentiated patients. The six-month progression-free survival was seventy-two point three months, and the six-month overall survival was eighty-seven percent. Uh, common treatment-related adverse events are fairly typical for lenvatinib and pembro: hypertension, diarrhea, and hypothyroidism. And grade 3 to 4 treatment-related adverse events were uh, observed in almost 35% of patients. Again, another small trial of a poorly studied and very difficult-to-treat set of cancers. Uh, but it is following in uh, in uh, other studies in this area. There was a, another Phase 2 uh, trial uh, that wasn't presented at ESMO, but uh, uh, examined the efficacy of cabozantinib and nivolumab. And so this combination of TKI and single-agent immunotherapy is, I guess, gaining traction as a potential treatment modality for non-clear cell renal cell cancer, which will be really good because these people are very difficult to treat. Yeah, I agree, Michael. I think it's I'm just having a look at the results here as well. One, one thing I would like to highlight, I'm pretty sure there's an Australian researcher in here, um, Howard Gurney is, I think, is one of the, the head clinical trialists out of Macquarie University. Um, for those who uh, are not from Australia listening to our podcast, that's uh, based in Sydney. It's, uh, I think it's a relatively 
largest research center. So that that's pretty cool seeing someone from home turf being included in the, the phase two Kino B61 study. Just got to give a shout out to the local heroes, don't you, John? I mean, he doesn't know me personally, but I recognize his name. He will after this podcast. He'll be like, ah, <laughs> ah that guy gave me a shout out. I'll give him a job. So yeah, sure. That sounds good. I appreciate your, uh, your confidence in our podcast. <laughs> Uh, if we're getting jobs off the basis of the podcast, then a lot of far more qualified people are being neglected. Anyway, uh, that wraps up my GU section. I have but two more studies that I want to talk about, and then we'll wrap this up because I know we've been yammering on for a while, as we always do. So the last section I'm going to talk about is skin, skin cancers. And the reason I say skin and not melanoma is I've got a melanoma study and I've got a cutaneous SCC study. Now, cutaneous SCC is something that I didn't have too much experience with up until this year, but it is an area that we're becoming more and more involved with, and that's because of semiplomab, which is a PD-1 inhibitor, acts much like any other immunotherapy, but there is very strong data that it has an effect in patients with metastatic unresectable uh, cutaneous squamous cell cancers. And Josh, have you seen many patients with uh, um, problems with cutaneous squamous cell cancers of the skin, which I guess is a tautology? I've treated a couple of people with semiplomab, yes. Yeah, it's it's really, really awful, especially when they get uh, non-resectable. It's often affecting their face or other sun-touched areas. Um, And it is... The, the morbidity associated with these is is frequently quite significant. Well, you get you get half your face eventually cut out, and I met one guy who, as a teenager, he his acne was treated with radiotherapy, and surprise, surprise, the outcome sixty years later was that he was getting terrible skin cancers. The other group of people who also get these are uh, patients who uh, have transplants and are on immunosuppression from transplants. That's uh, notorious for just recurrent refractory um, squamous cell cancers. And then, of course, semiplomab and things like that becomes a real dicey situation because they're immunosuppressed and you don't want them to lose their transplant organ. Of course. So, Marky, what's the culprit when it comes to immunosuppressive agents that causes skin cancers? Oh, that's a good question, Josh. I'm going to take a punt and say tacrolimus because that's the one I know. I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, Back from our physician days where you just had to hammer those like 12 toxicities anyway. It's been a long time. I'll let you out. Uh, it has been a long time. Talking. Anyway, so semiplomab at the moment, what I was what I was getting at before we uh, went on a trip down memory lane there, uh, is uh, that semiplomab is used in the unresectable locally advanced setting, so when patients are frequently refractory to radiotherapy and surgical approaches. This study, though, is actually looking at semiplomab in the neoadjuvant setting. So Josh mentioned this with his niche to uh, analysis, but um, there is a significant push, and I think we've said this in previous podcasts, towards putting uh, treatment even before surgery. So we're bringing treatment forward, we're bringing agents forward, and now the we're reaching sort of the logical extreme of that, which is bringing them even before surgery. I think the, the only way we could escalate that is to put these things in the drinking water. Uh, but so the trial was looking at semiplomab uh, neoadjuvantly in patients with resectable stage 2 to stage 4 
cutaneous SCC. It's a, a multi-centre phase two single-arm trial and patients received semiplumab every three weeks for up to four doses and the primary endpoint was independently assessed, assessed pathological complete response. Secondary endpoints was the rate of major pathological response, which was defined as less than or equal to 10% of viable tumour in the surgical specimen, and overall response rate. Small study with 79 patients enrolled, 62% uh, 62 patients, I should say, received all four doses, and 70 of those patients underwent surgery. The primary endpoint was met with a pathological complete response rate observed in 50% of patients, which is huge if you think about the morbidity, as we were saying, associated with the surgery. Major pathological response was observed in an additional 12%. So overall, you're looking at 62-63% of patients treated with neoadjuvant semiplumab who have a significant shrinkage and then... Uh, a, sig- a significant reduction in the morbidity of their surgery with neoadjuvant semiplumab. That is a glass half full, Michael. <laughs> I like to be glass half full sometimes. It's exhausting to be depressing all the time. And that's why you chose oncology. Um, but look, that's great. Uh, they're going to do like longitudinal follow-up with these guys to see what happens. I would imagine so. Um, I would imagine that there would be uh, overall uh, survival data potential... Well, Potentially, there will be overall survival data. I didn't see confirmation of that. But I guess this is also opening the door to larger phase three studies where they can look at overall survival. They can look at recurrence-free survival. This is much more of a confirmatory open-label study. Cool. Indeed. So cool, dude. Um, (laughs) we're, We're about 10 episodes in and we're already devolving into the Ninja Turtles. So there you go. In terms of safety, uh, 17.7% of patients experienced a grade three or grade four adverse event. Uh, four patients experienced grade five adverse events, but these didn't really seem to be immune mediated. So they actually, because there was only four patients, they could actually uh, state what the uh, reasons for the grade 5 toxicity, which is a fatal toxicity, as we've said, uh, was. So one had an exacerbation of pre-existing CCF. Two had uh, uh, ischemic heart events that were fatal. And one had COVID-19 pneumonia. So none of those are really related to, or at least not directly related to, the semiplomat. I'm going to say that COVID-19 was completely not related to semiplomat. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. So um, basically, in summary, this is, again, uh, it's entirely possible that we will start to see uh, cutaneous SCC patients earlier on, because like I said, we do tend to see them when they're much more in the salvage end of the road type phase. Uh, But with neoadjuvant semiplomab, we might be seeing them earlier. And my final study, which is a a study that is potentially of great importance, it's another neoadjuvant study, and it's a melanoma study of neoadjuvant pembrolizumab. This is SWOG1801, and it is neoadjuvant pembrolizumab compared to adjuvant pembrolizumab in patients with stage 2b to stage 3 melanoma. So... It included patients with cutaneous, acral, and mucosal melanoma, which I thought was very interesting because frequently in studies that I've seen, the non-cutaneous subtypes of melanoma uh, are sometimes excluded. Uh, 
Obviously, there's none of the super rare things like uveal melanoma, but uh, the inclusion of acryl and mucosal melanoma is interesting. Patients were randomized one-to-one, and they either received upfront surgery followed by adjuvant Pembro for 18 cycles, or three doses of neoadjuvant Pembro went to surgery and then had 15 doses of adjuvant Pembro. So regardless, they're getting adjuvant Pembro, but the question is whether it's worth sandwiching the surgery a little bit. Radiotherapy was allowed after surgery, and the primary endpoint was event-free survival. There were 313 patients in this uh, study, so for a phase 2 study, it's pretty big, and the median follow-up was 14.7 months. Now, the event-free response, uh, the event-free survival in the neoadjuvant group compared to the adjuvant group, the hazard ratio was 0.59, and the overall survival hazard ratio was 0.63. The benefit was uh, uh, consistent across age, uh, sex, performance, status, stage, uh, level of LDH, whether the original tumour was ulcerated, and the BRAF status. And so you have a significant improvement in recurrence rates, a 41% reduction in recurrence uh, over the 14 months in patients who received just three cycles of neoadjuvant pembrolizumab. And I think it's what makes this especially exciting is we're not actually changing the treatment. We're not changing the amount of treatment that these patients are getting. They're still getting 18 cycles. It's just the sequencing. So it's a very, very easy change to make to practice. Uh, The same proportion of patients made it to surgery um, uh, and then subsequently to adjuvant pembrolizumab in both arms. So you're not impacting patients' ability to get to surgery or to get adjuvant treatment. And the adverse events were similar in both arms, as one would expect, because, again, the amount of immunotherapy you're getting is the same. 21% of patients, lastly, were noted to have a pathological complete response on uh, review of their resection. So, really, this is potentially game-changing, and that's why I sort of left it to last. Um, One of the most esteemed uh, melanoma specialists in Australia, so a nation of melanoma specialists, uh, Professor Georgina Long, uh, tweeted after this was presented that this really should change the management almost immediately of uh, earlier stage melanoma. So uh, it is potentially practice changing, and it is uh, something that should definitely be considered with, as far as I can see, Josh, very few drawbacks. Yeah, look, I think melanoma is one of those diseases that is can be one of those, it's a nuisance to treat because the recurrence rates are high. I guess for Australia or for us specifically, it's not funded in the neoadjuvant setting. So I would love to see another trial, bigger trial, except to kind of come to the government, um, wherever you are around the world, should promote this too should i don't know should, should def- it's a come to australia we've got melanoma for days for your melanoma trials we've got melanoma patients for days um that high uv so it's great i think we need to do it i kind of agree with georgina long if you're going to reduce the risk of recurrence by that much at 14 months i do want to see longer follow-up i really do i think i'm always like oh we've got to discuss this but i just want to be 100 percent certain in my mind that giving this neoadjuvantly is better but if you've got the theme of esmo over the last two sessions and all of these trials and i think it's checkmate 
correct me if I'm wrong, but checkmate eight eight one six Michael the lung eight one six for lung yeah. yeah like it's all heading that way. It's heading that if we kill the cancer before we cut it out, we're going to improve outcomes. Absolutely, and it's like I said, it is the I guess the natural progression of you know initially we cut the cancer out and then only treated it when we couldn't with chemotherapy when we couldn't cut the cancer out and then we cut the cancer out and then gave adjuvant treatment and now the natural progression of that is to treat first and then cut out and then actually be able to see what the result of the treatment was so it is um a very exciting time to be practicing oncology we will be seeing patients a lot earlier with uh, this push towards neoadjuvant treatment. And um, further to your point, Josh, about it not being funded, I suspect that um, Pembro will be funded uh, very quickly for neoadjuvant um, treatment of melanoma, mainly because, it's like I said, it's not actually going to cost the government any more than it already is. All they need to do is just say, is just change the wording of the approval. But the government would be paying the same amount because the total course is the same. It's 18 cycles. So I think that this is one of those things that hopefully the government will look at and say, I mean, it's no skin off our backs. And if it's improving um, patient outcomes, then definitely should do it. I would love to leave with one final question in this particular trial, Michael. So you give someone the 18 cycles of pembrolizumab in the neoadjuvant and adjuvant setting, and two years later they recur. What do you do? Ipinevo. Assuming they're BRAF negative, in which case you'd probably do enco, encorafenib and bidimetinib. Yeah, which is, yeah. But but again, I think this comes down to something that we were sort of touched on earlier, which is uh, with the prostate trial, which is that they have not progressed on treatment. So yes, while the possibility of treatment might be, the the possibility of them having a dramatic treatment response might be low, then uh, they haven't actually demonstrated failure of the treatment. Now, if you are giving them the immunotherapy, they get to cycle 15 or cycle 8 or cycle 2, and they already recur, then you're in big trouble because you have objective evidence that immunotherapy is not working. I guess you are right in that respect, but I I always worry. A little bit of me just worries. I'm like, if I'm going to re-challenge you with another immunotherapy, I just, I want it to work. I want to know that we still have something to effectively melt that cancer away especially melanoma but you know you're, you're right we we don't have that answer they haven't failed from the treatment but i suspect the way the biology works that you know your immune system stimulated adapts it kills the cell that shouldn't change so if that does change and then they recur it means that your immune system isn't able to maintain that process but look, that's just me thinking in the future. But if it was me and I had the option of neoadjuvant a Pembro, I would take it, especially with these stats. Definitely. And I think it's the um, the eternal uh, question, and we've had it, uh, I know you and I have had it, Josh, sort of off the air, um, but the eternal question of do you push all of your chips to the center of the table and put all of your treatment up front and say, we need to give you the best chance of nipping this in the bud, or do you hold things in reserve? And I think that it's a discussion with the patients. 
it's a discussion with the individual patient, but my default setting has increasingly become if there is a chance to prevent a patient from recurring, then you've really got to take it. But that's just that's just a personal opinion. Everyone will be different. I would I would actually agree with you. I think you can't go home and sleep well at night if you've got an option and you've told them let's wait and watch. Exactly. And and if we extrapolate data from other tumor streams there does seem to be a, a a mode of thinking that if you wait until the uh until the metastatic incurable setting even if it's the same treatment the treatment very well may be less effective for any number of reasons but the um you you might find that even though you're giving the same treatment to the same patient if you had given it up front you might have had a numerically better outcome than if you held it back. 100%. I think the next line of treatment after neoadjuvant, this is my theory, you give a pill and they don't need surgery. The end. Which would be great. It would be it would be abs- it would be absolutely fantastic if we can save people from from needing surgeries. If surgery becomes the salvage rather than chemotherapy. Um, but that's a bit of a uh, a pie in the sky type uh, thinking at the moment. We would be the sexiest specialty alive. Oh boy, wouldn't we just? I mean, <laughs> yeah. um, all right. Well, uh, we have uh, gone well over our allotted time, I think, tonight, Josh. So we should wrap it up very quick, very quickly. There, I guess, if you're going to take one thing away from our two episodes of es- uh, Esmo wrap ups, it's that uh, uh, neoadjuvant treatment is here, and it's only going to get more and more important. I concur to that statement. I'm glad you concur to that statement. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited for next year's ESMO where hopefully you and I will both get to attend. I know. We're going to have so many shenanigans. Anyway, so next, uh, join us next week. We will be on uh, back to our usual schedule of uh, tackling a subject and trying to give the uh, the... Uh, more in-depth analysis of two very pivotal studies. And next week, I think we are looking at metastatic urothelial cancer. So we really hope to uh, see you then. Uh, Have you listened then? If you like what you're listening to, find us on Twitter. And as Josh said, facetiously, like, subscribe, leave a review, watch our TikTok. We don't have a TikTok. We're never going to reveal our TikTok. And... um, Uh, We will see you next week for more oncology for the inquisitive mind.